Open up your navigation app or website of choice and center your finger or mouse over the United States. Now go to the state of Colorado. For those unfamiliar, it's located on the central western portion of the country. You'll see that the state's capital, Denver, sits at the intersection of Interstate Highways 25, 70, and 76. Now travel south from Denver on Interstate 25, passing the city of Colorado Springs and halting in the river city of Pueblo. Drink some water to stave off the desert heat and head due west on US Route 50. Just barely past Fremont County Airport, about seven miles short of Cannon City, and enter the small city of Florence. Now head south on Colorado State Highway 67 for a little over a mile, and you will arrive at your destination, the United States Penitentiary Administrative Maximum Facility, better known as ADX Florence. ADX Florence, located deep within the Rocky Mountains, is classed as a supermax prison, the highest security level for American prisons. Its inmates include Boston Marathon bomber Jokar Tsarnaev, former Soviet spy Robert Hansen, British shoe bomber Richard Reed, Nigerian underwear bomber Umar Abdemudalov, Aryan Brotherhood gang founder Tyler Bingham, Atlanta Olympic bomber Eric Rudolph, Colombian fart gorilla Simon Trinidad, Mexican drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, and likely soon, Australian activist and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Needless to say, this is a prison for the United States' biggest enemies. Inmates are under constant supervision and spend only one hour outside their cells every day. Security is of paramount importance as the facility holds leaders of many rival gangs. Despite this, there were at one time three inmates who could not only tolerate each other, but who were close friends. They bonded over two things, their shared prowess with explosives and their mutual hatred of the United States government. I'm going to tell you about all of them, right now, on Astoria Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the first episode of this podcast, and I'm truly excited that you've decided to give it a listen. I can't wait for you to hear it. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. On May 22, 1942, a child was born in Chicago, Illinois. His name was Theodore John Kaczynski. Kaczynski's parents were the grandchildren of Polish immigrants to the United States. He was hospitalized constantly from a young age because he frequently had hives, and due to this, he was isolated from other toddlers. For this reason, he felt bad for animals that had to live in cages and started secretly letting his neighbor's pets run free. An autistic savant by most definitions, Kaczynski's IQ was measured at 167 by the time he was in 6th grade. 
He established himself as a mathematics prodigy early on, graduating high school at the age of just 15. Kaczynski enrolled at Harvard University on a scholarship and graduated with a bachelor's degree in mathematics just weeks before his 20th birthday. He earned his doctorate at the University of Michigan, and his thesis paper was reportedly so complex that his professor didn't even understand it. During this time, he was a subject in the CIA's infamous Project MKUltra, a series of studies on mind control, which involved the psychological and emotional abuse of college students and young adults. At age 25, Kaczynski became an assistant professor of mathematics at UC Berkeley but his rigid, uncomfortable teaching style caused him to resign just two years later. And around this time, across the country, something big happened. On April 23rd, 1968, another child was born in upstate New York, His name was Timothy James McVeigh. McVeigh would have a troubled childhood. His parents divorced when he was 10 years old, and he was raised by his father in Pendleton, New York. He regularly fantasized about having a girlfriend, but he was reportedly too shy to talk to girls. He was frequently bullied due to his fascination with computers and electronics. Because of this, McVeigh took solace in an imaginary world where he was able to fight back against his tormentors. This didn't stop his love of computers, however, as he was able to hack into several government computer systems while in high school. Once he was introduced to firearms by his grandfather, McVeigh became obsessed with guns, often taking them to school to impress his classmates. Although he had very poor grades in high school, he had an IQ of 126 and his school recognized him in his senior yearbook as the most promising computer programmer. After a brief stint at a local college, McVeigh dropped out and enlisted in the U.S. Army, where he was frequently reprimanded for his use of racial slurs towards black soldiers. He was deployed to Kuwait during Operation Desert Storm in 1990, but became wary of the military after being ordered to execute surrendering Iraqi soldiers and after the notorious Highway of Death incident in which American, British, Canadian, and French soldiers killed over a thousand retreating Iraqi troops. While in Kuwait, McVeigh didn't see any significance in where he was, nor did he have any reason to. But just four days after his own birth, something else had happened, right where he was. On April 27, 1968, a third child was born, this time in Kuwait. His name was Abdul Basit Mahmoud Abdul Karim. However, he would later take the alias Ramzi Youssef. Both of Youssef's parents were from Pakistan, but remained in Kuwait for much of Youssef's childhood. After his time in grammar school, Yusuf went to the United Kingdom to study at the Swansea Institute in Wales while his parents returned to Pakistan. Yusuf's time at Swansea was very productive, and in 1990, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. He also attended English language programs at City of Oxford College, becoming fluent very quickly. 
After graduating, Yusuf returned to Pakistan to live with his family. He had a fairly normal adolescence and young childhood, by far the most normal of this episode's subjects. However, this is not even near the end of his story. After stepping down from his teaching position, Ted Kaczynski moved to rural Montana, where he built a cabin without electricity or running water. He taught himself survival skills while simultaneously volunteering at a local library. When an apartment complex was built near his cabin, he began vandalizing it to discourage it from being further expanded. He eventually reached a breaking point with what he called industrial society, when a road was built through his favorite ravine and waterfall. On May 25, 1978, Kaczynski placed a package in the parking lot at the University of Chicago, bearing the return address of Northwestern University engineering professor Buckley Christ. Upon the package's supposed return to him, a suspicious Christ had the package opened by a campus police officer. The package contained a small shrapnel bomb, which exploded, injuring the officer. Kaczynski began a series of similar mail bombings from 1978 to 1995, as well as the bombing of American Airlines Flight 444, which caused 12 injuries from smoke inhalation. In 1995, after repeated demands, the New York Times and Washington Post published Kaczynski's Anti-Industrial Manifesto as part of an agreement to end his bombings. In total, 23 people were injured by Kaczynski's bombs, and three people were killed. California computer store owner Hugh Scrutton, New Jersey advertising executive Thomas Mosser, and California timber lobbyist Gilbert Murray the FBI designated Kaczynski the University and Airline Bomber. He is better known as the Unabomber. After being tipped off by his brother in 1996, the FBI raided Kaczynski's cabin, arresting him. He pled guilty to three counts of murder, and in 1998, he was given eight consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. He is serving a sentence in ADX Florence. Unit D. After failing to become a Green Beret, Timothy McVeigh requested an honorable discharge from the Army in 1991, which was granted. He became a compulsive gambler and continued to advocate for gun rights, taking up staunch anti-government beliefs. In 1992, McVeigh was outraged when former Army engineer Ricky Weaver was engaged by several U.S. Marshals in a shootout at Weaver's Ranch in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, after being given an arrest warrant for firearm charges. During the shootout, Weaver's wife, son, and dog were killed. McVeigh's anger at the government surged again in 1993 when the ATF and FBI raided the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas, and set it on fire, killing 82 men, women, and children. McVeigh developed an especially deep hatred for Japanese-American FBI sniper Lon Horiuchi, who had killed Ricky Weaver's wife and son, as well as several members of the Branch Davidians. 
McVeigh sent death threats and hate mail to Horiyuchi and handed out cards at gun shows containing Horiyuchi's home address. He even considered personally attacking him or his family. However, McVeigh instead decided on a different target, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He moved to a farm in Michigan, owned by his friend Terry Nichols. The two of them spent two years experimenting with explosives, especially those made with fertilizer, which Nichols owned a lot of. One day, they packed a 5,000-pound ammonium nitrate fertilizer bomb into the back of a rented truck, and McVeigh began the long drive down to Oklahoma City. At 9 a.m. on April 19, 1995, he parked the truck next to the Murrah building and lit a fuse. Two minutes later, the bomb exploded. The bomb leveled the north half of the building, killing 168 people, including 19 children. After being pulled over and arrested for driving without license plates, McVeigh was identified as the bomber and arrested. In 1997, McVeigh was found guilty of the murder of eight federal officers, as well as using a weapon of mass destruction. He was sentenced to death. Nichols was given 161 consecutive life sentences, the longest prison sentence in world history. To await his execution, McVeigh was transferred to ADX Florence, Unit D. After returning to Pakistan in 1991, Ramzi Yusuf was introduced to Islamic extremism by his uncle, notable terrorist Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He developed a hatred of the Western world, especially the United States and Israel. Yusuf moved to the city of Peshawar, where he began learning how to make bombs. After more training from Mohammed, Yusuf illegally emigrated to the United States, settling in Jersey City, New Jersey. After considering bombing Jewish neighborhoods in New York City, he decided to instead attack the World Trade Center. With several other co-conspirators, Yusuf began building a urea nitrate bomb in his apartment. Yusuf obtained the materials for the bomb by intentionally getting into car accidents and going to the hospital so he could easily steal the necessary chemicals. Their plan was to bomb the North Tower of the World Trade Center, therefore making it collapse onto the South Tower. On February 26, 1993, they rented a van and packed the bomb inside. Then, Yusuf drove into New York and parked in the garage under the North Tower. He lit the fuse and mailed a letter to the New York Times, in which he demanded that the U.S. cut off all foreign relations with Israel. Twelve minutes later, the bomb exploded instantly killing five Port Authority employees, a businessman, and an unborn child. Fortunately, the truck was parked next to a stone pillar, which absorbed the blast and prevented the building from collapsing. However, in addition to the six deaths, over 1,000 people were injured. Yusuf evaded capture by flying back to Pakistan, while two of his co-conspirators were arrested after trying to get their insurance payout from the now-destroyed van. No, really, they actually tried to. After a failed attempt to assassinate Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, Yusuf fled to the Philippines, where he began working on the Bojinka plot. The Bojinka plot consisted of three attacks, bombing an airplane flight, 
assassinating Pope John Paul II, and flying a plane into the CIA's headquarters in Langley, Virginia. In 1994, Yusuf planted a bomb on Philippine Airlines Flight 434, killing a Japanese businessman. However, his two other attacks had to be called off after a fire started in his Manila apartment, forcing him to flee back to Pakistan. In 1995, a joint Pakistani and American reconnaissance team raided Yusuf's hotel room in Islamabad, Pakistan, where he was arrested and extradited to the United States to stand trial. In 1996, he was found guilty of masterminding the Bojinka plot and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The next year, he was also found guilty of the World Trade Center bombing and given another life sentence plus 240 years. He is serving both sentences in ADX Florence, Unit D. Now, you may have noticed something that these three evil men have in common. ADX Florence, Unit D. This wing of the prison happened to house all three of them. For this reason, it became known as Bomber's Row. However, the three did not immediately see eye to eye. While McVeigh admired the speech Yusuf made at his trial criticizing American foreign policy, the older Kaczynski originally looked down on the other two, both 30 years old. Despite this, all three shared a disdain for the United States government, and they frequently vented about the current state of the government. They also liked to update each other on the status of their cases. Eventually, McVeigh gained Kaczynski's admiration by discussing primitive technology and game hunting techniques, as both were avid outdoorsmen. Yusuf even tried to convert the agnostic McVeigh to Islam on several occasions. McVeigh, a cable news junkie, introduced Kaczynski and Yusuf to CNN, a network he admired for exposing government wrongdoing, and soon both became regular viewers. In late 1998, New York gang leader Luis Felipe, a self-proclaimed womanizer, was transferred to Unit D, piquing McVeigh's interest. The two would talk late at night about attractive women, and they frequently traded adult magazines. But McVeigh's self-dubbed smut buddy would never match the intellectual bond he shared with his other two cellmates, with whom he would regularly share books about politics and religion. Kaczynski used his steel trap memory to his advantage, remembering his friend's birthdays and favorite movies. However, this friendship ended in 1999, when it was announced that McVeigh would be transferred to the United States Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. There, he would be placed on federal death row before being executed. Kaczynski and Yusuf begged McVeigh to continue his appeals against his death sentence, but McVeigh dropped the appeals, saying that he would rather die than spend his life in prison. Two years later, McVeigh indulged in his last meal, two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. The next day, he emerged from his cell at USP Terre Haute and was escorted to the execution chamber. McVeigh was strapped onto the gurney, and despite being an agnostic, he took the last rites as a Catholic. 
For his last statement, he read the poem Invictus. Then, on June 11, 2001, at 7.14 a.m., Timothy McVeigh was pronounced dead due to lethal injection. Under a law previously signed by President Bill Clinton, McVeigh was not buried in a military cemetery, and his remains were instead cremated, following the death of their friend, Ted Kaczynski and Ramsey Youssef drifted apart. A 77-year-old Kaczynski now spends his days learning languages, and he is fluent in German, Italian, and Korean. Youssef, meanwhile, was placed in solitary confinement despite his good behavior, and he continues to fight his contact ban in court in the hopes of one day reuniting with the elderly Kaczynski. To date, he is the only prisoner on Bomber's Row who has expressed any remorse for his crimes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I know that this was a particularly dark topic, but it was so fascinating that I couldn't turn it down. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.